Welcome back. I'm Shane McClelland. I'm Lori Gum. And these are the Q Files. We know this is a little belated, but we wanted to acknowledge the Transgender Day of Remembrance, which took place on November 20th, as it does every year. According to the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, Transgender Day of Remembrance was started in 1999 by transgender advocate Gwendolyn Ann Smith as a vigil to honor the memory of Rita Hester, a transgender woman who was killed the previous year. The vigil commemorated all of the transgender people lost to violence since Rita Hester's death and began an important tradition that has become the annual Transgender Day of Remembrance. Hester was a transgender African-American woman who was murdered in Alston, Massachusetts on November 28, 1998. While in her own apartment, she was stabbed 20 times. In response to her murder, an outpouring of grief and anger led to a candlelight vigil held in Boston the following Friday, in which about 250 people participated. It was this gathering that would inspire the annual observance. Gwendolyn Ann Smith herself would say this. Transgender Day of Remembrance seeks to highlight the losses we face due to anti-transgender bigotry and violence. I am no stranger to the need to fight for our rights, and the right to simply exist is first and foremost. With so many seeking to erase transgender people, sometimes in the most brutal ways possible, it is vitally important that those we lose are remembered and that we continue to fight for justice. To this day, police have not found Rita Hester's murderer, and 2021 has already proven to be the most deadly year on record for fatal violence against the trans and gender non-conforming community, with 49 deaths, the majority of them trans women of color. And historically, that has always been the case. It is estimated that nearly 80% of all violent deaths of transgender individuals are committed against these members of our community. And while the observance of the Transgender Day of Remembrance often includes candlelight vigils and the reading of the names of those who have been murdered the previous year, it is also a time for the living transgender community to tell their own stories, to be visible and make their authentic voices heard. It is also fitting to remember the stories of our transgender ancestors, lives lived long before ours. In a time when there was not even language to describe their self-identity to the world, or more importantly, to themselves. They lived their lives on the sharp, cutting edge of violence, isolation, the threat of imprisonment, and death, simply to remain true to their authentic selves. It is in that spirit that we offer you this tale of Irish-born immigrant Albert D.J. Cashier, a Union private who served during the Civil War. And as we mark this season of remembrance, it is indeed a cruel irony that Albert himself, in the end, due to dementia and mental illness, would not even be able to remember his own remarkable story. But we do. Heeding President Lincoln's call for an additional 300,000 Union troops to help save the nation, on August 6, 1862, 19-year-old Albert Cashier went to Belvedere, Illinois, to enlist with Company G of the 95th Illinois Infantry. His enlistment records say he was 5'3", eyes blue, hair amber, and his birthplace was listed as New York. 
He would be trained as an infantryman and was eventually shipped out first to Kentucky and then to Jackson, Tennessee, where his company became part of the Army of Tennessee under General Ulysses S. Grant. General Grant was already dazzling President Lincoln and the Northern public with his sure-handed and iron-fisted, and yes, bloody, victories at Fort Donelson and at the Battle of Shiloh. He had now set his sights on the seemingly impenetrable Confederate stronghold at Vicksburg. A victory there could split the Confederacy in two and turn the tide of the war in favor of Union forces. Private Cashier would be amongst the more than 100,000 troops dedicating their own very lives to help General Grant with this mighty task to save the Union. He was ready. A Union sergeant would say of Albert, He was a right feisty little bastard. He'd sooner fight than eat. On a reconnaissance mission just several days into the siege, Albert was captured by Confederate troops. Feigning illness and exhaustion, he did not resist. And after a day or so of this very convincing performance, the rebels literally let down their guard, sure that he was too sick to try and run. When the right moment arose, Albert grabbed a gun from his captor and beat him over the head with the butt of the rifle and escaped, but not without a large group of Confederate soldiers hot on his tail. His swift-footed flight and uncanny sense of direction carried him back to the safety of his own front lines, to the proud roars of delight from his fellow comrades. Albert would become known for his bravery, courage, and patriotism, even though, it was said, he was very quiet and always seemed to keep to himself, except, of course, in battle. On another occasion, Sergeant C.W. Ives, who kept a diary of his wartime experiences, was with Albert when they got cut off from the rest of the company. Ives noted that when the rebel soldiers took cover behind some fallen trees, Albert jumped up on a log, shaking his musket, and yelled, Hey, you darn rebels, why don't you get up where we can see you? Ives continues, They were not more than a block distance and could easily see him. I was acting lieutenant, and at the time, and I ordered him down. A storm of bullets swept across there, but he was not hit. There weren't nothing scared about that boy. Indeed, and he was lucky, too. During his entire wartime service, Albert would not be wounded or injured in any way. Besides a bout of dysentery that sent him to the Army hospital, he would escape without a scratch. However, in time, the diarrhea would prove chronic and disable him for the rest of his life. Albert Cashier would spend three years in the Union Army, and it was recorded that during that time, he and his company had marched over 9,000 miles together. He would fight in over 40 battles. He was mustered out on April 17, 1865, with an honorable discharge. The war was over. The Union was saved, and his comrades returned to their homes and families, proud and victorious. But Albert had no home. He had no family. He would return to Belvedere, Illinois, for a while, and worked for a man named Samuel Pepper. Yet, he was still restless. In 1869, he would eventually settle in the tiny town of Sanamon, some 80 miles southwest of Chicago, and lived there for the next 40 years. He would find sporadic employment, work as a handyman, church janitor, cemetery worker, and the city's lamplighter. 
His name can still be found in the city payroll archives. And he also found a kindly employer named Joshua Chesbro, who allowed Albert to live with his family in exchange for work. In 1885, the Chesbro family built him a small one-room house of his own. He was also befriended by the neighboring Lannan family and would regularly dine with them for his evening meal. But he would remain isolated, quiet, and socially a recluse. Whenever he left his home in the morning for work, it was said that he would carefully secure it with three padlocks. If he left town for any reason, he would nail the door and the window shut to keep out the prowlers. He locked up his possessions just as he locked out any intimate connections to the world or other people in general. But he would be remembered by any that knew him as a gentle and kind man. A neighbor would say, many times he came to our place to stay a while and he could rock my baby daughter to sleep better than we could. And every year on Memorial Day or Decoration Day as they used to call it, Albert would proudly march in the parade in his increasingly tattered Union uniform, prompting the neighborhood children to tease him relentlessly, asking him if he was a bugle boy or a drummer boy due to his short stature and his lack of a beard. Albert would shout proudly, I was an infantry fighting man. And then he always made sure to give the children candy and ice cream after each annual parade. And he would always make it a point to vote in every election. In general, Albert was well-liked and respected by his fellow townsfolk, even if they hardly knew him. Albert would begin receiving an Army disability pension in 1890 due to the chronic dysentery he had acquired during the war. He got $8 a month. It helped, but not much. He was essentially penniless. But he survived as time passed on. Some years later in 1911, when he was in his late 60s, Albert began working as a handyman for State Senator Ira Lish in Sonneman. Lish would later say that Albert was entirely alone, destitute, and dependent on the charity of others. One fateful morning, according to the newspaper, the Pontiac Daily Reader, he, Albert, was sitting in such a manner that when Senator Lish backed the car out, he ran over Albert's leg, breaking it just above the ankle. And that was actually not true. His leg was broken closer to the hip. Even over Albert's vehement protestations, Lish called Dr. C.F. Ross, who arrived quickly and began to try and set the fracture. Then and there, the doctor discovered that Albert Cashier was, in his words, a woman. This revelation, of course, was expressed by him in the language of an era confined by a strict notion of binary gender norms. Today, more accurately, we would say Albert was assigned female at birth. Naturally, the physician notified Lish of the situation. Albert begged the doctor and Lish to keep his secret between themselves. According to a thesis written in 1969 by Mary Catherine Lannan of Illinois State University, the two men decided that there would be no point in publicizing the information and agreed to Albert's plea. One other person had to know, however, and that was the nurse secured to care for him. The nurse, Mrs. Nettie Ross, who was the daughter of Joss Chesbro, but not related to Dr. Ross, acknowledged later that she too had known Albert's secret and had told only her family about the discovery. The Chesbro family felt close to Albert, 
since he had lived with them for a while when he first arrived in Sanaman and decided to bury the knowledge within the family. But what to do with Albert now? He was nearing 70 years old, permanently disabled, and could not work. Lish arranged for Albert to be transferred to the all-male Soldiers and Sailors Home in Quincy, Illinois on May 5, 1911. Lish was listed as the next of kin and no other family recorded. Lish arranged with the home superintendent, Colonel John Anderson, and the chief medical examiner that Albert be admitted without disclosure or discussion of his gender. Albert would be allowed to continue to lead his life as a male-identified veteran at the facility. None of the staff would be notified of such, except those most essential to Albert's direct care, and they were sworn to secrecy. On the application for admission, Albert said that his place of birth was Ireland. Dr. Ross certified that Albert suffered from the disabilities and weakness of age with weakened mental faculties. His medical records at the home clearly identified him as male. Now safe and secure, Albert would thrive in his new home, and he relished his time with his fellow veterans sharing war stories and battlefield triumphs. Some of his old G Company comrades would even come to visit, which delighted the aging Albert. The administrators of the Soldier and Sailor's Home would actually bring in his previous Union Army Company commander, Captain Alman Schellinger, for a visit at the home's expense. The visit was even reported by the local newspapers with pictures of the reunion, Albert and Schellinger together in their old Union uniforms. It was a grand day for the man that Schellinger had always called the brave little soldier. Indeed, he may have been brave, but the toughest battle of his life was about to begin. Albert was becoming more and more ill, both physically and mentally. More constant care was needed, and Albert's secret was slowly leaking out to the staff and the veterans at the home. In May of 1913, a journalist in Quincy got a hold of the story and said this, Of all the war tales veterans will tell on Memorial Day in a thousand American cities, towns, and villages, there is not one so strange and so full of heroism as the tale of the veteran I have just visited here in the Illinois soldier's home. Albert D.J. Cashier, who fought through the three hardest years of the Civil War, who draws a pension from the United States and is a member of the Grand Army of the Republic, is a woman. It would continue saying, she does not know, however, that the world has learned her secret, and her comrades in the home, who have treated her always with touching kindness and respect, still call her Albert, and give no hint that they understand. The sensationalized story would be shared in newspapers across the nation. Most of the reports would be false and insulting regarding the details of Albert's life. The Macon, Missouri Republican asked, why did a pretty young Irish girl enter the Union Army and serve all through the terrible days of a war unparalleled for fierceness? The Belvedere, Illinois Republican Northwestern stated that, according to the woman's story, she donned boys' clothes in her native country, Ireland, and that Cashier was in love with a member of the regiment enlisted to be near him. The Leavenworth, Kansas Post wrote that in Ireland, she always went under the name of George, but declared her proper name is Georgia Hughes. None of this was true. The Guardian, a British paper, reported 
she has refused to disclose her name or tell her family history. The Green Bay Press-Gazette said that Albert was a woman whose real name will probably never be known because recently she became demented. Everyone in the country was now reading about Albert Cashier, including the U.S. government, which immediately instituted an investigation against Albert for Army disability pension fraud. They would call upon the Company G veterans and even ask them to visit Albert in the soldier's home to verify that he had indeed been their wartime comrade. According to author Lannan, two of the veterans, Robert Horan and Charles W. Ives, traveled to Quincy to see Cashier in person. Horan, who had been a corporal in Company G, had read the discovery in advance. He related this. When I got there, I walked into the room and I saw him sitting there. She did not recognize me at once, but she did when I told her who I was. When I first saw her, I recognized her at once as being Albert D.J. Cashier, who served in Company G. 95th Illinois. If I had not read these reports in the paper, I am positive that I would have been able to recognize her. Officer Ives would state basically the same. Over a dozen Company G veterans would visit Albert at the home and unanimously confirmed that he was indeed the man he had always claimed to be. Those same veterans who had fought side by side with Albert would also tell government officials about his fearless courage, his relentless bravery, and his deep love for his country how he'd risked his life so many times for his comrades and, in turn, helped to save the Union and the nation. To them, it didn't matter what gender Albert considered himself. He had proven himself again and again on the bloody battlefield and deserved, at the very least, to continue to receive his now $12 a month pension. Unbelievably enough, the government agreed with the G Company of the 95th Infantry and dismissed the investigation and the accusation of fraud. On February 15, 1915, they would officially declare, the evidence secured in this case shows beyond any possible doubt that the pensioner is the person who rendered the service. Identity is accepted. Unfortunately, it is not clear if Albert ever knew this or understood this, nor, most likely, did he know how his veteran brothers had stood up for him and truly claimed him as one of their own, demanding for him all of the respect and dignity that entailed. It was an inspiring act of allyship, especially for that era. The newspapers would come around, too, as they wrote about the pension investigation. The Belvedere Republican noted that. She fought bravely through all the war, taking her place in the battle line with all the other heroes, implying that this soldier, like every other soldier, was indeed entitled to his just rewards. However, the worst was yet to come, and it had been in the making even before Albert's secret was revealed to the world. Author Lannan adds this. Early in 1913, the doctors at the Soldiers and Sailors' Home decided that Albert D.J. Cashier was too ill and too senile to be cared for at the home. Thus, they began proceedings to have him adjudged insane. The initial document, the application to try the question of insanity, was filed on February 20th, 1913. Six days later, two doctors who had been appointed to examine Cashier did conclude that he was 
insane. The physician's specific report listed Albert's major difficulty as a chronic state of confusion. They admitted that he was not destructive and did not require restraint, but commented that he was noisy at times, did not sleep well, and had no memory. The doctor stated that the patient was a white male, a farmer, and a Catholic. Thus, they continued the official practice of considering cashier a male. On March 27, 1914, Adams County issued a warrant for the commitment of Albert to the Waterton State Hospital in East Moline, Illinois. Regardless of what existed on the warrant or his previous medical records, the administrators of the state hospital knew that Albert was assigned female at birth. Up until this time, Albert was completely unaware that anyone knew his secret. The state hospital admitted him to the women's ward, removed his uniform, and insisted that he wear only dresses and gowns. This came as a deep, brutal, and debilitating shock to Albert, who was distraught and would even steal safety pins and try to pin up his gown into a makeshift pair of trousers. That, too, was not permitted. Unaccustomed to wearing women's clothing, Albert would trip on the hem of his gown, take a vicious fall, and break his hip. His soldier's luck had finally run out. He would be bedridden for the rest of his life. On October 10, 1915, at the age of 71, Albert Cashier died of what was officially called an intercurrent infection. There is no record of exactly what that infection was. A military funeral was arranged by Colonel Graham Post at the Angevine Funeral Home in East Moline on October 12th. Albert was dressed in his uniform with a large flag draped over his casket. The Moline Dispatch newspaper noted, 30 veterans gathered to pay their last tribute to the departed. J.G. Scholl's post commander spoke. There was singing by nurses from Watertown Hospital and post exercises were carried out. Cashier's remains were escorted from the funeral parlor to the railroad station and put aboard the 345 train to Sonneman. Two women, themselves long deceased, had provided for a cemetery plot there for Cashier, who had done some work for them. There, he was also given a military burial. Albert's grave was marked by a plain tombstone and was near the Chesbro family plot in the Sunny Slope Cemetery. It simply reads, Albert D.J. Cashier, Company G, 95th Illinois Infantry. The badly deteriorating marker was duplicated and replaced in 1970, and an additional grave marker was added. That said, Albert D.J. Cashier, Company G, 95th Illinois Infantry, Civil War, born Jenny Hodgers in Clogherhead, Ireland, 1843 to 1915. Let us explain. Even throughout his penniless life, Albert had managed to save some money, and he left an estate of $418.46. A banker named W.J. Singleton, president of the Illinois State Bank of Quincy, who had actually helped Albert apply for his pension, was named executor and spent nine years looking for an heir as some were stepping forward to lay claim to the inheritance. None of them could be verified as true relatives. Singleton would go through Albert's medical records at the soldier's home, and there he found a documented account by an employee, Leroy S. Scott, who had become very close to Albert 
and he had related the story of one of their conversations to the pension fraud investigation officials. His testimony states this. She talked about gathering seashells, and I took it from that that she was born on the coast of Ireland. She first told me she was born at Balbriggan. I wrote the parish priest there, and he replied he could not find any record. In her talks with me, Albert often spoke of an Aunt Nan, and thought she must be quite an old woman by that time. I finally got it from her that the aunt's surname was Hodgers. She then told me she was born at Clowerhead, Ireland. With the information as to the surname Hodgers, I wrote the priest at Clowerhead. In turn, he gave my letter to Patrick Hodgers, who replied to me. I sent the priest Albert's picture, and he gave it to Patrick Hodgers, who wrote me that he recognized it, and that some of the old neighbors recognized it. The priest wrote me that her father was unknown and that no record of the birth could be found, that the records of the Catholic Church were not kept prior to 1857, and that when she was born, she lived in a Protestant parish. After I secured the information for Patrick Hodgers, I read his letter to Albert, and she then acknowledged that her name was Hodgers and admitted that her uncle was Dennis Hodgers. She then told me that her uncle was a sheep buyer, and she used to go with him and herd the sheep. Singleton now had the information he needed. In late 1915, a Clawherhead Ireland newspaper ran an article about Albert and said that his name had originally been Hodgers and that any known relative should step forward because she left considerable property and money behind. There were many claims that flooded in, but none proved certifiable enough for Singleton to grant them any inheritance. But there was one letter from a gentleman named Hugh Hodges of Kelly Bush County, Ireland, that finally supplied Singleton with the name he had been seeking. Albert's birth name was Jenny, Jenny Hodgers. Hodges' claim of being related were not able to be verified. As a matter of fact, no claims were ever verified, and the money was deposited in the Adams County, Illinois Treasury, where it appears to remain to this day. There have been many claims over the years as to the facts of Albert's early life and about why he decided to present as masculine identified. Some would say these stories would come from Albert himself, but that is hard to believe as he had gone through such lengths to live his authentic gender that we do not believe that he would have shared this information with anyone. There are tales of how Albert was a twin and his mother dressed him in boys' clothes and that how he eventually wore those clothes and stowed away alone, first on a ship to England and then again on a ship to New York City. Another claim was that after the family came to America, his stepfather dressed him in boys' clothes to enable him to get a job at a shoe factory to help the struggling immigrant family survive. That stepfather also gave him the name Albert. Not one of those stories are verifiable in any way, and Albert himself was illiterate. And we believe he would never have written them down, even if he could. And in the end, it doesn't really matter how it began or where. For the 53 years of his recorded life, Albert Cashier lived his life true to his authentic identity. We can't know that for sure, and it might even be presumptuous to say, with our modern vernacular, that Albert was transgender and fully lived his life as a trans man, and did so proudly. We believe that to be so. And at the end of his life, Albert was the victim of gender violence, being forced to wear a dress, 
his true identity erased, dismissed, and diminished. They might not have killed him, but they brutally crushed his spirit and his soul. His friends who visited would say that at the end of his life, he was a completely broken man. No doubt, it prematurely ended his life. Transphobic murder comes in many cruel and vicious forms. It is said that over 1,000 female-assigned-at-birth individuals donned the uniforms of the armies of the Civil War, both Union and Confederate. Some were caught and sent home. Others would fulfill their military service without being detected. But we know very little about their lives after they returned home. Believe it or not, five were found during the Battle of Gettysburg, two Union and three Confederate. Three of the five were discovered because of injuries they sustained. Regarding the other two, the emerging Civil War magazine author Sarah K. Burrell explains, Another Confederate female soldier strode forward in Pickett's charge. She was mortally wounded near Emmitsburg Road and not taken to a field hospital. During the night of July 3rd, a private from New Jersey heard her agonized screams, but was unable and unauthorized to give her aid. Later, the Union soldier would declare that the cries were the most horrible sounds he had ever heard. Another Confederate female soldier was not identified as a woman until her death. Her body was found near the stone wall at the angle by a Union burial detail. At the end of Union General William Hayes' Gettysburg report, he noted the burial of the Southern dead. One terse sentence records the female soldier. Remarks, one female private in rebel uniform. We, of course, have no way of knowing how these gender nonconforming soldiers identified. But it is within these shrouded stories of the past, in these hidden histories and the spaces in between, that we must continue to investigate, talk about, and write about in order to not only understand the history of our queer community, but also to honor it. Like the amazing story of a remarkable man, Albert D.J. Cashier. On August 27, 2019, the city of Sonoman restored Albert's one-room house and placed it at the corner of Center and Maple near the center of town. A large sign officially marks it as the Albert Cashier Historical Home. Today, he is regarded as a town hero, and Sonoman is determined to make sure that his story is not forgotten. So, we say to our transgender family, friends, and community, past and present. Please know that we love you, we respect you, we hear you, and we see you. And we remember you. Thanks so much for listening. Hey, we want to give a big shout out and thanks to author Mary Catherine Lannon and her 1969 Illinois State University thesis entitled Albert D.J. Kashir and the 95th Illinois Infantry. Her documentation and fact-based record of Albert's life allowed us to truly present his story in the most truthful way possible amidst a literal mound of inaccurate and sensational reporting. Interestingly enough, Lannon is a descendant of one of the actual families who befriended Albert in Sonoman, as mentioned in the story. We'll put a post to the link of the entire thesis on our social media pages. The 142-page document is a fascinating read. If you enjoyed this episode, tell a fellow weirdo and leave a review. 
This show was created and produced by me, Shane McClelland, and Lori Gum. Until next time, friends. Be weird. Stay curious. These are the Q-Files. <laughs>